All right, this, uh, for the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about the Lord's Prayer. Uh, it's one of the most famous pieces of uh, recited Christian essential literature in Matthew 6. There's also another version in the Gospel of Luke. Um, we are spending the next 10 weeks talking about the life of the kingdom, the life of the kingdom of Jesus. So four weeks in the Lord's Prayer, six weeks then after that in the, in the parables, and all of this that we're talking about here on Sunday morning is getting worked out uh, in a small group. So if you don't have a small group, we want to plug you into a small group. But just be thinking over the next 10 weeks, kingdom life, that's what we're talking about. And here we have the ultimate prayer of the kingdom So I'm going to read from Matthew 6, and then I'll flip over to Romans 8, if you want to put your finger in there. So Matthew 6, where did I have, okay, good. This is starting at verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let me read from Romans 8. Verse 14. Is that up there? It's okay. 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for uh, the life that we have in you, the life that is not our own, the life that surpasses our own, the life that enlivens our own dead hearts. And in you, we have profound riches, riches that aren't even our own inheritance, they're inheritance of the Son. God, we confess that we, like the disciples of Jesus' day, need to be taught to pray. Not, God, so that we can more appropriately get what we want, but so that we can be taught to pray as you want. So we pray that our hearts would be soft, that the word would pierce us, we'd be shaped and formed to love you more deeply and truly, and in so doing, that you'd be glorified. We love you, Lord Jesus. Amen. So this morning, we're just going to talk about the first couple lines of that prayer that uh, if you've been around a church or Christian people at all, you've probably heard this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, we often hear the the, uh, King James version, the James version of this is that art and thou, and, and we get to this word hallowed, and we just sort of speed through it, 
and we don't really think about what we're saying. You know, I remember watching one of the many sports shows that I've watched, and uh, these men who most of them probably wouldn't say they're Christian get down on one knee and they, they rush through the Lord's Prayer right before a game, so sort of, I don't know, magically bless their efforts or something. Um, and they're just sort of, our Father, I'll be the name of the kingdom come that will be done. It just sort of sounds like this rumble before they, they go out. And you, I would encourage you to stop and to listen to the words, all of the words, but I, w- I want to stop at this word, hallowed, and ask, what do you think that means? What, what does it mean for something to be hallowed? And what are you praying if, when you pray this prayer, hallowed be your name? Why is it the head of the prayer? Why is it the very beginning? It's the first petition, hallowed be your name. And Jesus seems to prioritize this. He says it's important. If it's so important, you should probably know what it means. So what does it mean to hallow something? The, the probably the most handy referent for hallow at this point is Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. This is not that. It's a great story, but no, this is not what we are talking about. This is a different hallow. This means may your name be honored. To put it the way the New English translation uh, interprets this, may your name be honored. It's an easier way to understand it, more um, finely, uh, more without being Englishized. It's, it's like, let your name be holied. Let your, let your name be holied in all the earth. So what that means is, is holiness implies separation and honor and veneration. That's what holy really means. We think holy just means like moral purity, but it means something more than that and bigger than that and heavier than that. And when Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, is pray that God's name would be holied in all the earth, that God's name would be spoken as a holy thing everywhere and anywhere. Let his name be honored in all the earth. And of course, this is how it should work. If God is God, then He should be spoken of with reverence. If God is God, His name should be holied in all the earth because that's an accurate reflection of who He is. He is this weighty, separate, high and holy person and we should speak His name with that kind of reverence. So what we're praying for is that we're praying that things should, uh, would be as they should be. May your name be spoken of as it should be spoken. May your name be hallowed in all the earth. Now, how does this work? There is, in some sense, a problem in the prayer itself. Because we have an easy understanding of this idea of heaven. This, we believe, is where God is. The problem is for us, and it's not in the prayer, it's in us praying the prayer, is that we have a misconception of what that means when we say God is in heaven. We immediately revert to old diagrams. Heaven is there. It's up there. 
And it's, it's tempting to believe when you read Scripture, when you read Scripture written by people who lived thousands of years ago, that they too must have believed that God is up there in heaven. Now, they, they, they had words, they had language for the heavens, for the things that are up there, but they didn't believe that if you got in what we would call a rocket ship and shot high enough into the sky, you would eventually get to the place where God is. We tend to think that they thought that because we think that, you know, we know more and they're dumb and we're not. But they are not dumb. They know that if you got in some magical rocket ship and went high enough in the sky, you would not get to heaven. But we have that diagram stuck in our mind. Our Father who's in heaven, way up there. And that is not a biblical view of what heaven is. Heaven is the place where God reigns. Heaven is the place where God's will is spoken and done in absolute conformity. Heaven is the place where God really and truly and purely reigns and rests at all times. But that does not mean He's way up in the sky or He's way far away from us. In fact, when Jesus comes and He starts preaching, what does He tell them? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. God is in heaven. Heaven is the place where God reigns truly and absolutely, where His rule is carried out. And, and much of what we think about heaven has been twisted by the cartoons that we watched, where, you know, the, the cartoon character gets, whatever, run over by a car, and their ghostly spirit goes, where? Up into the clouds. And they have wings and a harp and they sit there on the cloud. So that screws with us in a number of ways because then we, we think that heaven is a direction that you travel after you die, and then also that heaven is lame because that is lame. Sitting on a cloud with, with a harp and wings for all of eternity, that is terrifying. Nobody wants that. But you have to sort of think about the world that I would say that, that Scripture actually teaches us to think about the world. Where there, there was a time when the world, as we are, was also the place where God was. In the beginning of the story, God makes the world. And He doesn't sort of appear and take a, a, an elevator down from the cloudy angel place down to here, and then it's a different thing. There is this sense in the beginning of the book of Genesis where God's will is carried out, where his, the earth is His footstool. It is part of His throne room. Heaven and earth are touching. They are overlapping. But then everything changes and gets messed up when people give themselves over to sin. There is rebellion on earth and it's like we evacuate heaven. It is not that God takes everything that heaven is and takes the elevator back up to the sky and abandons the earth and one day you need to escape this terrible place called earth. The biblical vision is that God would fix this rupture. The biblical vision, if you go all the way to the end of the story, if you go to the book of Revelation, is not that everybody who loves Jesus gets in the big elevator and rides it up to heaven, but that heaven comes back to earth. And the ultimate destiny of, of all of earth and space and heaven is that heaven and earth would be united once again, that the place where God rules and reigns would be here. 
That is what God wants for the earth. That is what God wants for history. He intends to, and I am not misspeaking here, He intends to kick the place where sin is judged, which is hell, out of the earth. He intends to kick the hell out of earth and bring heaven back in. Our Father who's in heaven wants His name to be hallowed and honored and holied by bringing heaven here. So we as people, as kingdom people, are taught to pray with longing in our bellies that things would be made right. And what is the key to this right-making? What is the key, the way that God wants His name to be holied, to be honored in all the earth? The way that God intends for His name to be celebrated and honored is by putting His name in our mouths. In the name that He teaches, Jesus teaches His people to pray is to call God Father. You and I, if you have grown up in church, you've spent up enough time around Christians, you hear us casually refer to God as Father in prayer all the time. As you hear people pray out loud, you sort of notice the patterns of the, the just and the fathers and the awkward filling of space. And, and people just sort of throw the name of God as Father out and we just move on. It is not incidental or unimportant that Jesus teaches His disciples to pray with this name of God, our Father. It is not unimportant. It is hugely important. It is a central theological statement of what Jesus intends to do in His life and death and resurrection. It is the whole plan of God is our ability to pray to address Him as our Father. When we do that, we are speaking of the big, big, big story of God in the world. Because way at the beginning, when everything was ruptured and when everything was ripped asunder, you and I were kicked out of right relationship with God. And it's not like somebody made us do something that we didn't choose to do in of ourselves. You and I know that moment after moment after moment in our life, we've known what we should do. And for some reason, we do other. And you and I get so used to that moment that we think this is called just being human. This is called just everybody's, you know, imperfect. Everybody could be better. But that moment when you know what you should do and you do entirely other, it is a fundamental rejection of the fatherhood of God. It is rebellion against the high king of heaven. It is is evacuation from home. It is one step further and further away from God. It is not a minor thing to know in that moment what you should do and to do other. It is in that moment to declare your infinite autonomy against the good, good God of all the earth. So when Jesus tells His disciples to pray our Father, He is saying in that moment that everything that has been ripped apart and destroyed is being fixed in Him. 
You and I were meant to know God differently and better than the way that we were born into. We were not meant to just casually acknowledge who God was, but to speak of Him with a closeness that acknowledges His goodness. And we can only do this when we acknowledge that our position in relation to Him is won for us by the Son of God. What Jesus is inviting people into and what Paul speaks of in that Romans 8 passage is you and I are adopted into the position that Jesus Himself sits in. My my right when it comes to God is not to just freely call Him Father. The appropriate name that I should call Him is Holy Judge. The appropriate name that I should call Him is Emperor over heaven and earth. That is the relationship that I have earned before God. But Jesus takes things out of the realm of earning and merit. And by, the, by His own blood, instead puts the name that He uses for His Father in our mouth. And Paul will reflect on this in Romans and say, but by the Holy Spirit, in you is put this petition you would call God Abba Father. This Abba name is so intimate and childlike. It is the Aramaic first word. It is Dada. It is babbling in love towards the parent. And Jesus will put that name in His disciples' mouth and say, you address God this way. And that is won for us by Jesus. You and I, we are home leavers. You and I, we are prodigal people who've run far away time and again. This portion of the Lord's Prayer is not something to stumble or rush through, but it's something that is designed to make your heart marvel. Now, many of us cannot speak the word Father without deep pain. Many of us have had our fathers fail us or abandon us. Many of us who, like me, our fathers, who are terrible fathers. And so we are tempted to to skate past this name because of all the ways that it has been wrecked for us. All the ways that we feel that we fail it. But what God will continue to say throughout all of Scripture is every way that you and I have access that we have contact with, proximity to, any kind of actually good and true love is merely a dim, dim reflection 
of the source of all love. So even if you have never had a good father, you have been abused or neglected or abandoned by your father, if your, your father is the most disappointing person you've ever met, everything in you that is craving a father is pointing you towards the source of a really good and true fatherhood. Every way that a mother was the one who fathered you, that was merely a signpost of the God who wanted to come and shelter you as father. All of the ways that you know that you fail as a father, all of the ways that you should feel that you should be other, the reckoning in your mind, the invisible measuring stick in your head is for you a road pointing back home to the Father. So it, it doesn't matter how badly this word has been screwed up for you. It doesn't matter how well this word has been fulfilled for you. Everything that you long for in a father is pointing to a real and better and truer father, the infinite father of all creation. You and I were meant to whisper the name of God with an understanding that He is not far away in a high, high heaven, way at the top of space somewhere. He is in His kingdom at hand. And you have been invited by the work of Jesus Christ to sit close to Him, to receive the inheritance of heaven itself, to come home and to plead with Him forever as your Father. That's why the author of Hebrews will say, come boldly before the throne. Come boldly before the throne of grace because you are not running in to the emperor's courtroom. You are running in to your Father's den. And He wants to be with you. When His name is uttered by kingdom people, the kingdom explodes into life. His name is holied and honored and made much of. When we speak of Him as Father, when we treat Him as Father, when we address Him as Father, because what we are saying when we do that is that the cross has worked and all the failures that we've encountered in ourselves and in others, they were not enough to stop the inescapable power of God to redeem what was broken. God is making much of Himself not by shooting fireworks off in the sky, putting billboards out there, shooting beams of light down, and giving people special supernatural experiences. The most glorifying thing that God does, the way that He makes most of Himself, it seems, is not through these extravagant supernatural ways on their face, but through the subtle and consistent claim by His people that God is our Father. And when His people speak that and believe that and live that, God's name is honored in all the earth. It is a declaration of His victory, an establishment of His purposes everywhere 
that sin has made us orphans. God has shown His power over that sin and adopted us to be His children. If you are here this morning and you are laboring before God, if you can, you can picture God way up there, you can picture God most readily as judge, and you cannot, you have not ever seen Him as your Father, my, my prayer for you today, my petition with you today is not to picture in your mind the perfect Father and to think of Him that way. What I encourage you to do is look at the cross. At the cross, God assures you that His verdict, His decision about you is fixed, final, forever, because that is the nature of the work of the Son of God on the cross. And if you have forgotten that, if you have trusted yourself, your own goodness for far too long, leave aside your baggage and your performance this morning and look at the cross. The Son of God has won your place forever. And if you are here this morning and you know that you have prayed that, you believe that, you trust that, and you have still wandered off and lived like an orphan, it's been a bad week, a bad month, a bad year, a bad five years, and you don't quite know what to do with yourself because of all the mess that you found yourself in. Look at the cross. The Son of God's death and resurrection is still your victory. And it is the assurance that your Father will always, always, always welcome you home. Because that is the place He's made for you. So leave aside whatever nonsense you've given yourself to this week, this month, this year, this five years. And come home and pray the way He taught you to pray. Father in heaven, holy Your name in my life. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank You for Your work on the cross, Your absolute victory. God, we thank You that You have made us kingdom people who can pray kingdom prayers and that the shape of Your kingdom is cruciform. It is marked by the boundaries of the cross. Our relationship with You is defined not by our own works, our own efforts, our own good moral standing, but by the moral standing of Your Son. And we have in You absolute freedom and assurance of acceptance, something we do not deserve. We know we don't, God. We know that we have looked at You, the Father, and in a number of ways we have spit in Your face and You treat us otherwise. God, I, I pray that You would help us to feel how close at hand the kingdom is. That we would not only see the wreckage and the ruin and the disrepair, but rather we would see the power of the cross. Father, we are sons and daughters who still run away from Your adoption. We open our arms and say, Abba, Father, 
Holy your name in our lives. Rescue us from ourselves. And God, like rambunctious, disobedient children, bring us home again. Shelter us in your love. Change us by your love. Make us better and truer sons and daughters who love you well. And in so doing, God, make your name famous in all the earth. That you can make sons and daughters out of even ones like us. You are so great, Jesus. We thank you. May our lives be marked by that gratitude. Amen.